morning, everybody. Welcome to Pillar Church. Looks like the uh, Treehouse K through Fivers are making their way back to line up with Mr. Kirby. Very good, very good. Well, my name is Trace, um, one of the pastors here at Pillar Church of Oceanside, and I'm excited to be here. I don't know about you guys. Still, the jury's out, I guess. Well, you know, based on last week, you know, kind of God calling us all out on being doers of the word, and you know, when it comes down to actually putting that in action, it's a little bit more challenging than sometimes we can get our hands on, but that's all right. So how many of you have either read the book, seen the movie, or seen the, the play slash musical Les Miserables? Hands high up in the air. Les Miserables. Les Mis? Okay. A frighteningly low amount, actually. Um, how many have heard of it? Raise your hand. Okay, really? Okay, We're, we've got problems here, people. <laughs> we got some problems. Mm. One of the problems is I'm going to have to go into more detail explaining how things are working here. But okay, <clears throat> as streamlined as I can make it, there's a ton of characters in this. It's actually a, a fantastic novel by Victor Hugo. Um, I've read the abridged version because the real one is like it's huge. Um, Tons of characters, but the two I want to focus on real briefly as we kind of set the stage for what we're talking about this morning is Jean Valjean, who's one of the main characters, and Javert. So Jean Valjean is a criminal. He's a convict um, because he stole a loaf of bread to help support his sister's family. Anybody know how many years he did in prison for stealing that loaf of bread? 19 years. 19 years for breaking a window, stealing a loaf of bread, so that his nephew wouldn't starve to death. Javert is the inspector, the guy whose authority, like he is the law. Nothing black and white about it. He is straight-laced as they come. They interact quite a bit early on. Um, parole comes. Jean Valjean gets his papers that basically condemn his life of being a criminal for the rest of his time on earth. Wherever he goes, he has to show these papers by law, to tell him I'm a former convict, and that, of course, informs the person I should treat you this way because you were once this, but apparently there's still something about you that I can't fully trust. So everywhere he goes, they're like, just keep moving on. No place to stay, no jobs, no nothing based on this paper. So finally, he gets fed up, tears up the papers, throws them off the cliff, and says, I'm going to start a new life, and he does. Scene changes, it's a few years later now, all of a sudden he is the mayor of this town. He's worked his way up um, because he no longer has that negative light shining on him. He's managed to become very uh, famous and popular in his town as a mayor. And who comes on the scene again but Inspector Javert, right? All of a sudden, completely different kind of interaction early on. Treats him with respect, Mr. Mayor, Monsieur Le Maire whatever he says in there, right? It's this total different dynamic in the relationship completely. Uh, I won't spoil it of how things turn out, but the point of the story is the position that Jean Valjean had in his life, his status, what this piece of paper told people he was 
is how he was treated. had nothing to do with his humanity or whether or not he was reformed within the prison system or what. It didn't matter. What people saw is what they gauged their entire manner of treating this man. And then all of a sudden, whoop, the tables turn and you see a completely different way of treating a person, the same exact person. And I, I, I share that story because that's exactly what James is talking about as we go into chapter 2 this morning. And so uh, we're going to read the first 13 verses of James chapter 2. So if you want to flip to James. <clears throat> James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes also in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself... You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not, commit, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, let's pray, ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll dig into this text. Father, we do thank you again for another day of life, Lord, and that's exactly what you've given us, Lord. Today was not promised, but by your grace and goodness to us, Lord, you saw fit to gather us this morning together to praise and worship and sing our hearts out to you, Lord. And now we turn our eyes to your text, Lord God, to your word, to your life. God, would you just help us to see in these 13 verses, in this passage, what you have for your church here. God, that we would make it useful for our growth, our maturity, as we grow in our faith and understanding of who you are. God, set aside all distractions. If our minds are wandering, Lord, would you give us razor-sharp focus? God, speak through me, I pray, this morning. Truth that will set us free. And I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, as per usual, if you have questions, you can text them to the number that's on the screen. Um, this should be the number for a while. It's, it's a, a new kind of venture for us. It's a number that will get shifted out through an app. So that number will be like the church number, at least for the next month until we see if it works right. But it should be good. should be good. So James, being the practical leader that, that he was, um, wants to give us an opportunity to, to put into practice 
what we learned last chapter, which in our case was last week. So what did we learn last week? I kind of gave you a hint already, but what do we need to be, according to last week? Be doers of what? Doers of the word and not hearers only, right? So if you weren't here, that's what we were instructed to last week. You have to not just sit under the word and hear the teaching, read the Bible, but you actually have to put it into action. You have to do the word. But not just that. We talked about reckoning the word or taking what we see in the scriptures and banking on it, not in the hopes that it would be true for us, but with everything that we have to believe that what God's word says is true. And because of that, we can walk in obedience and confidence when we do the word. Does that make sense? Is that a, a, an, a fair, really quick recap of last week? Yes. Cool. Great. Because I want to read a very convicting statement with regard to our response to the word of God. So taking into account what we read last week, I read this scripture. But then it's not a scripture. It's just a statement that I found, and I want to read it to you. It says, we only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. How many of you heard that before? We only believe as much as the Bible as we practice. That's uh, pretty difficult to swallow. Would you agree? But based on what the end of the last chapter told us, there's more truth to that statement than we, we care to admit. Cricket. Cricket. If we're commanded to be doers of the word, and God himself tells us that his word is true, it's never changing, and that we are to act on it, what in the world would keep us from not doing it? Well, I told us last week there's a little bit of a misunderstanding of what's at stake. James told us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We talked about one of the most dangerous places we can be as believers is thinking that we're doing okay, maturing, because we know the word, and yet we, we lack the action. That's a very dangerous thing. And when you tie that together into this statement of we only believe as much as the Bible as we practice, the importance, the significance of being doers of the word should never be more apparent than right now. There is a lot at stake. It should be crystal clear. And so James, right out of the gate in chapter 2, gives us an opportunity right away to put that into action. He's like, hey, you want to be doers of the word? Great. Let me give you an example of how you can be a doer of the word. Look again at verse 1. He says, show no partiality. So if you're asking, where's a good place to start being a doer? Verse 1 of chapter 2, show no partiality. So this is one of actually three things that James is going to share with us to give us a focus of effort, so to speak, in being doers of the word. So he starts with the idea that we are not to base what we do or what we say, how we treat someone based on their outward position, right, their status in the world, or even their appearance. That goes for anybody who's well-off, wealthy, the homeless person on the street, and everybody in between. The way James is telling us to grow up this week, to mature in our Christian faith, is to avoid the sin of partiality. Remember we called the sermon series, Grow Up. So we're always looking for ways in which James is telling us to grow up. One of the ways he's telling us is avoid this sin of partiality through these means that I'm going to give you. He doesn't just kind of leave us out 
on our own. It gives us some tools and some tricks. I think how we treat other people is a very good indicator of where we are on the maturity level within our Christian walk. Would you agree with that? How we interact with people, you know, what's in our heart as we're interacting with people, gives us a really good gauge of where we are on that maturity um, scale, if you want to call it that. Um, One of the reasons is because our society is almost entirely built on status, right? Everything in the commercial world has to do with status. What are you wearing? What are you driving? Where do you live? Where do your kids go to school? What school did you go to? Like everything is about status. When you know all the right people, you have wealth, you have good looks, people go out of their way to cater to you. Is that not true? Okay. You're shaking your head because you're one of those good looking people and you know, right? Like, yeah, people go out out of the way for me all the time. Well, except for Mike and Jared. But the rest of us know exactly... Just kidding, you guys are just sitting back there, so I had to... I wasn't going to say Lee. I mean, Lee's... That's what James is addressing when he gives this example in verses 2 through 4. Making distinctions and offering preferential treatment to, in this case, the wealthy. Remember, that was one of the three points throughout the entire letter we're going to keep seeing, is this comparison between the wealthy and the poor. So this is another example of how that theme is continuing through the letter. So if we are sometimes prone to do this, to show partiality, which we are, I won't ask you to raise your hand, we are, as fallen human beings, prone at times to this, which James calls a sin, we should probably get to the bottom of a few things to figure out why. And we're going to ask a couple of questions along the way to help us unpack what's going on in our hearts. And so the first question is, why do we show partiality? Right? If we're prone to do this, why do we do it? Well, part of the reason I've kind of already laid out before us, it's how our society works. And sometimes we fall into those patterns of behavior that are around us. It's not just this partiality example, but it's really hard to push against uh, you know, the, the way in which everybody is going, right? to go against the grain. So one of the reasons why we show partiality is because that's the example all around us. It can be challenging at times to break through that. But a more revealing question is this. What do we hope to gain from it? If we do show partiality, what do we hope to gain from it? Yeah, you could throw in all kinds of answers there, right? Oftentimes we show preferential treatment to people because we think they have something to offer us in return. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. We show preferential treatment perhaps to somebody who is in a position of influence, maybe a boss. Like, are you thinking, well, if I just go out of my way, maybe I bring them Starbucks every, you know, every couple of days. Maybe they'll consider me you know, a little higher up on the list when it comes to applying for promotion. Now, it probably doesn't really pan out. Maybe it does in your workplace, but it just kind of shows you <laughs> There's no real reality behind that whole thing um, unless you have a boss who likes people that suck up, and then, you know, it could. But you see the point, right? We were looking for something from somebody. But when it comes to the other end of the spectrum, it's always easy to look at some, somebody who has something to give us and, and draw that parallel in our lives. But go to the other end of the spectrum. Say a poor homeless person 
the tune changes, right? In this case, we don't think the person really has anything to offer us at all. Why am I going to go out of way for that person? They, they've got nothing to give me, so I'm just going to kind of give them the Heisman, right? We do things like ignore or disassociate. Worse yet, the partiality exists because what we hope to gain is the benefit of not having to deal with that person or their problems. So we do actually seek to gain something out of showing partiality that we don't have to actually deal with what it would take to, to go out of our way to help a poor homeless person. By brushing them aside, we say, essentially, you have nothing to offer me, and I don't want to have anything to offer you. It's the easy way out of a potentially uncomfortable and challenging opportunity, and it's what James is talking about here. We cannot show partiality, whether we think they have something to offer or whether we know, whether we know they have nothing to offer us tangibly. It could be a tremendous blessing out of helping somebody who is less fortunate than us. Oftentimes there is, and it's not financial. <laughs> it's not anything that we would try to gather from somebody in that situation. But I do want to add kind of a short interlude here. I kind of went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to address this, but I think it's important um, regarding verse 5. Everybody look at verse 5 real quick. 2, 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So we have to remember that a majority of James's audience, the original recipients, would have been poor, not wealthy people. From very humble means, many of them would have been exploited by rich people. So the examples that James is using would have really rung true with these folks that he's writing to. So we have to keep that in mind. But I do want to clarify in verse 5, James is absolutely not saying that only the poor are chosen by God to inherit the kingdom. Because some people could read that and go, oh, it's just, just the poor. Did not God say that the poor were, were chosen? And there's a couple reasons why. Um, one is that poor is not a monetary status that God uses to choose people. Otherwise, only the poor would be chosen. Correct? And we should never seek to bring somebody up out of poverty lest we should steal their salvation from them, right? So that it doesn't make sense what he's saying there. I'll, I just want to help us clarify that. Poor is a spiritual status through the eyes of the world because of their faith. Christians were held in low esteem and their status was poor in the eyes of non-believers, this is made more clear as James clarifies that the poor are to become rich in faith. It's a spiritual status. It's not a financial status. When he says poor, it's not what he's talking about. Hopefully, that kind of help make sure we're, we're not thinking that, oh, man, I've got to give up everything and be poor in order to be inheriting the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying here. But the third question that I want to ask when regard to why we show partiality is what understanding do we lack when we respond with partiality? When we show partiality, what is it in our understanding of how we should be living our lives that we're lacking? Any answers just off the top of your head? What information are we missing when we respond in partiality? Our heart. 
Heart status? God's love? What about God's commandments? God tells us not to. Look at Leviticus 19.15. Hopefully it'll be up there, maybe. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer, defer to the great. Straight up tells us in the law that was written in Leviticus, don't do it. Well, you're like, well, that's an Old Testament example. You're right, it is. But Jesus clearly modeled this as he broke down all the barriers that existed, socioeconomic, you name it, and he was breaking down these kinds of barriers, ethnic barriers. Peter spoke about it when he was preaching the gospel. You remember back in Acts 10 when he was about to preach the gospel to the first time to the Gentiles, which would have been a complete departure from anything. Like, we don't even associate with the Gentiles because that's them and we're us. <laughs> and so now Peter's going to bring the gospel to them. This is a huge, huge thing. And so in Acts 10, 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's James building on what Jesus says and what God said when he laid the law down in the Old Testament. We don't show partiality. So really, showing partiality goes directly against the character of God. Can you see that? It goes directly against the character of God. One more scripture just to nail it. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Again, very, very clear picture for us of how we're supposed to be not showing partiality. And so consider this. The way that we behave toward people tells us a lot about what we believe about God. I'll say that one more time. The way that we interact with people, the way that we do or do not show partiality, tells us a lot about what we think about God. Just kind of let that sink in for a little bit because it's a challenging thing to consider. It's a very tall order. <laughs> it's a very challenging thing. But I want to encourage you with this. God gives us all that we need to be doers of the word. You believe that? Absolutely. That's, that's part of what we need to remind ourselves of is we're not out here on our own. Even if all we had was each other reminding of what the word says and the promises of God, that's an amazing thing. But he gives us everything that we need to be doers of the word, to include and avoid avoiding the sin of partiality. He gives us the tools that we need. And so the way that James helps us is by pointing us back to the words of Jesus, who said in Matthew 22, 37, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
So one very practical and effective way that James tells us we can be doers of non-partiality is by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And that's what verse 8 tells us in, in chapter 2. So many of the tools, I wouldn't say, I almost said unfortunately, but it's not unfortunate. Many of the tools that God gives us are challenging to, to put into practice. Right? It's not just a plug and play, easy kind of thing. Sometimes. But when it comes to this particular thing, loving your neighbor as yourself, let me just back up a little bit. If we think of a neighbor as anyone other than ourselves, then why is it challenging to love our neighbor as ourself? Why do you think, why do you think it is? Or why is it challenging to love your neighbor as yourself? Because people are flawed. That's a nice way of putting it. It's sacrificial. We're selfish. What is it? There's too, there's too many of them. Yeah. Yeah. We can go all day long. I think one of them is that people are difficult. Amen. Yeah. Including us. Thank you. Yes. I said people. I'm not showing partiality today. We are all people and we are all difficult in some way, some form, or fashion. In fact, some people we have no desire to love. Correct? Okay, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. And that's the point that James is making. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we want to do those things. Now, maybe it would help to clarify the love in loving our neighbor. <clears throat> because it is a challenging thing. We need to just explore that real briefly. Love is the foundation on which the Bible is built. And it's the heart of the royal law. That's what James calls it a couple of times in the scriptures. What really saying is Jesus fulfilling the law, that's the royal law. Like him coming and fulfilling the law, that's the royal law. So love is at the heart of all of it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. For God so loved the world, right, that he sent his only son. Christ's death on the cross in our place, founded on love. All of it is built on love. And so his laying down his own life is a perfect picture of the kind of love that he calls us to have for other people. But putting that love into action requires a few things. It's Again, it's one thing to know it, to read it, and to go, oh, okay, that's the kind of love you're talking about. Oh, I'm supposed to do that now? All right. So that's going to also me asking a couple questions of how can we do that effectively. Well, I'll ask the same question as I asked before. What, what understanding do I lack when I don't love others as God instructs me to? So what, what's, what's the disconnect here when I know that I've read that I'm called to do this and I don't do it? What, what understanding am I lacking? Well, it starts with recognizing the love that God has for us. As I told you, Everything that we walk through, that we read through, that we experience is founded on love. So we have to understand the kind of love that God has for us in order to extend that love to others. You can't give something you don't have or you don't understand. Yes? So we have to know fully, as much as we can in our fallen state, the kind of love that God has for us. It means seeing God, seeing people rather, as God sees them. Not through our tainted and our jaded eyes, which is very easy to do. 
Right? That's kind of the path down, I think, partiality. It's like, you don't know me, you don't know where I'm from, I don't know you, I don't know where you're from, so we kind of automatically start to see things through our own eyes, which is a very easy thing to do, as I said. So it takes shifting our focus, saying, what does God say about that person? What does God say about all people? There's no partiality, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no, you know, we see all these things in the scriptures that we're all the same. Before God, every one of us. So what do we do then? We need to consider a person based on nothing other than their humanity. The air in their lungs, the blood in their veins, nothing that they have or don't have to offer us, simply based on them as a human being, that's how we approach and begin the process of loving our neighbor as ourself. Otherwise, something is going to divert our attention <laughs> to where we might begin to show partiality. Well, I'm not going to approach that person because they're this. Or, eh, the person looks a little sketchy, so I'm going to kind of avoid that. Now, the way that this gets walked out is going to open up kind of a can of worms for all kinds of questions. And, and what about in this situation? How do I look? Okay, we're not talking about that. We're we're up here talking in general. This is what James is telling us to do. When we drill down deep and we get into those situations, then we can start to ask more specific questions. But let's just start with loving our neighbor as ourselves, understanding the source of that love, and then we can start being doers and figure it out along the way, if it makes sense. Because we could go down lots of little rabbit trails and and those kinds of things, and we we don't want to do that right here in this setting. So does it mean that we need to be best friends with everybody? No. Does it even mean that we have to enjoy being around people that we love, that we're trying to love? It doesn't. That would be great. But the reality is, (laughs) sometimes we won't be in that situation. But if the love of God is in us and we hope to show that example, to live out that example of love, then we must love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't have to enjoy the process. I would encourage you, though, as you do this more and more, it does get easier to love people because you begin to see what God sees in them. And God has a sense of humor in revealing some things about yourself that are maybe not as lovable. You're like, oh man, I thought this person was unlovable, and I'm like, "Eh, I'm kind of like down here now. So God uses those things, um, and it's, it's a beautiful way in which he does that. But to be clear, we are to love all people. Jane, or John, 1 John excuse me, 4.20 kind of seals the deal for us. Let's look at 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's really hard to skirt that one. It really, really is. So let's not try. Let's not try to, again, categorize and like, what about this? Or kind of, you know, justify things in our mind. That's not what's written here. Now, expand that concept that we just read to include... Loving our enemies, people who have hurt us, people who have betrayed us. Was there any qualifier in 1 John? Love everybody except 
No. And then all the other scriptural support of loving your, your enemies and praying for them and all those kinds of things. There's no qualifier. And I told you, it wasn't going to be easy. I almost used the word, unfortunately, it's challenging. But it is fortunate that God is stretching us in this ways. It's not easy. It's challenging to love our enemies and those who have hurt us and those who we're afraid of or those that we don't understand or those that we don't want to take the time to get to know. But with the aid and strength of the Holy Spirit, we can and we are to do that. We can be doers of loving our neighbors as ourselves and by extension, not showing partiality whatsoever. Easy? No. Possible? Yes, absolutely. And we get to grow up and mature through these opportunities. You can't grow in loving somebody who's difficult without loving somebody who's difficult. And you learn along the way. That's what I was trying to get at before. It's when you're in the trenches that you begin to say, oh, now I get what God meant when he said this. You know, those kinds of situations. That's part of the growing up. But there's one last driving factor before we wrap things up that can assist us being doers of this particular word. And we see it in verse 12. It says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Again, the law of liberty being the law, Old Testament law, fulfilled in Christ. It's the gospel. It's the truth. All of that. Simply put, we will be judged as believers, not for our sin, but for how we lived out the commandments Jesus gave us, most significantly, loving God and loving others. Right? We will be held accountable for how we do this. How are we doers of not showing partiality? How are we doers of loving God and loving others? That we will be judged for. And so we are to speak and act in such a way that demonstrates the kind of grace and mercy and love that God extends to all of us. So how are we to grow up this week? Be doers of the word by avoiding the sin of partiality and fulfilling the law of loving others as ourselves. And I would encourage you, as you kind of mull this over this week, read through those 13 verses again and ask those questions. Why do we do this? If God commands us not to show partiality, why do we do it? What do we hope to gain? What understanding do I lack when I do show partiality? And then drill a little deeper when you're looking at loving others as, as ourselves. Why don't I do this? What in me personally is the struggle for doing what I know that God has commanded me to do? And what understanding, what am I missing in my understanding of this that prevents me from walking in obedience? And if I'm not in obedience, then I'm walking in sin. And that's not where we want to be either. Now, there is grace, of course. Grace abounds. And there is forgiveness, and we, we walk through this process, and we grow and mature, right? We fall short, we mess up, especially in the areas of how we treat others. But I do want to encourage you one last time, is, is how we interact with each other tells us a lot about where we are in our, our spiritual maturity and what we believe about who God is. So if you're looking for ways to really kind of gauge where you are spiritually, that's a great place to start. How do you interact with all people, not just the ones that you love to have over on Friday night, but the people that are the most challenging, especially. So let's consider that as we wrap up in prayer this morning.
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. Um, thank you for your word that sometimes just that pierces straight to the heart. We know, Lord, that you've given us a reason to love others as ourselves. God, there's no clearer picture of the gospel than, than extending that kind of love that you've given to us, Lord God. There's so many people that are broken and are hurting that need to be loved, that need to be cared for, that need to be shown the kind of love that you have for them. And we as believers also need to be reminded of that love. So I just pray, Father, that you'd help us this week as we consider what are ways in which we are showing partiality? Which are ways, what are the ways in which we are falling short in how we treat other people? And what does it say about what we really know about you, God? And how much do we take your word to heart in applying it to these situations? God, we want to walk in love, but we know that we'll fall short. So we pray in advance for your grace. We're grateful for your forgiveness when we do fall short. But God, we want to grow up. We want to mature. We want to get to a place where we can demonstrate the kind of love that people would look at us and how we treat them and go, why? Why would you do this? And we could say with confidence, because this is the kind of love that saved my soul. What a powerful testimony simply by getting out of our own way, allowing you to work through us with that deep kind of love and compassion for all the world. I pray and ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.